All right, it is good to see you, and it is a uh, privilege to be together. This is definitely uh, one of my favorite times of the week, uh, just being able to get together and study God's Word. Uh, since this is God's Word, we know it has power, and it's exciting for us. It's kind of like, God, what are you going to do in our lives uh, through this book? And uh, so I am excited. It's exciting to study God's Word, and it also takes work. And it has uh, been a little bit of work for us, if you've been with us the past couple weeks, uh, because you know we're looking at the Old Testament. And uh, we are working on understanding the Old Testament. And it's been a, a little different. I don't know if maybe for you it's felt a little bit like a mixture between a lecture and a sermon. Uh, am I lecturing? Am I preaching a sermon? Maybe a little bit of both, because I'm just trying to give you a short introduction to the Old Testament. That's kind of our title. The only problem with that title, of course, is that it hasn't been very short. I think it's been uh, five Sundays so far, and this is the sixth. But the Old Testament is big. Uh, there's a lot of information in there, and it's often a little confusing for us, and yet it is important. You cannot understand Jesus without understanding the Old Testament which is really why we're, we're doing this. And so we've been looking at some key concepts that will help you get an idea of what is going on in the Old Testament. And I've given you five so far, if you remember. And actually, I was thinking maybe I could stop with five. This week, I went back and forth a little bit because I know that you're probably itching to just get into one book and work our way through one book. But you know, this last concept is just too important and uh, it's the last one, but it's, it's just too important. I can't overlook it. I can't imagine saying that I preached a series introducing the Old Testament and not talking about this. It wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be complete. So uh, today, uh, we've uh, talked about kingdom already, Genesis 1 through 3, and, and covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and then Israel, Exodus 19, 4 through 6, and David, 2 Samuel 1 through 7. These are some of our key concepts. Last week, five, eschatology, which was pretty much the book of Isaiah, really. And then today, today, sixth, Messiah. This is our sixth key concept, Messiah. And for this one, we're going to do a little bit of Bible study, meaning that we're going to actually not just look at one passage, but a lot of passages to sort of trace one word through, through the entire Old Testament. And specifically, I want us to think about what it means to say that Jesus is the Messiah. And one reason that you need to think about what that means is because it's a large part of what the New Testament is written to help you understand about Jesus. So, for example, if you look at the Apostle Paul, Paul was obviously one of the most important representatives of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, we get to listen in sometimes as he goes out to tell people about Jesus. And check out the way that Luke describes Paul's strategy in Acts 17, 2 and 3. His evangelistic strategy. Luke writes, Acts 17, 2 and 3, and according to Paul's custom, so that means this was his habit. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, which is what we're going to be doing today, reasoning 
from the scriptures. But what was he reasoning with them from the scriptures about? Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And Christ, you know, is not Jesus' last name. It is a Greek word that they used for the Messiah. And so you see here, how did Paul witness? He preached a two-point sermon. First, he said that when you read the Old Testament, you will see that the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again and second, then he said, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. In other words, he is the Messiah that we've been waiting on, which is not just a message that Paul preached by himself either. If you take the Gospel of John, John tells us why he's writing. Where? Where does John tell us the purpose of his book? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Luke tells us the purpose at the beginning. John tells us his purpose at the end. And in John 20, 30 and 31, he explains, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There are all kinds of other things John could have said, but he chose to write what he wrote, why? because he wants his readers to be persuaded that Jesus really is the Messiah. Matthew, how did Matthew open his book? Matthew 1, verse 1. Anybody remember the very first words of, of Matthew? The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Mark, same thing. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. It's funny, I was looking at some overviews of Matthew and Mark, and the title of one was The Unique Purpose of Matthew, Jesus the Promised Messiah. And the other was The Unique Purpose of Mark, Jesus the Servant Messiah. In fact, if you study Mark, you see that the turning point of his whole gospel is found in chapter 8. In the first seven chapters of Mark, Jesus is doing all these amazing things, and people are seeing what Jesus is doing, and they're asking all these questions about him. Chapter 1, verse 27, they say, what is this? Chapter 2, verse 7, they say, why does this man speak that way? Chapter 2, verse 16, they say, what is going on? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Chapter 4, verse 41, they become very afraid, and they say to each other, who is this? Chapter 6, verse 2, they say, where did this man get these things? In other words, throughout the first seven chapters of Mark, they're asking, who is Jesus? And all of these questions lead up to, these, to this climactic moment in chapter 8 where Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks, who do you say that I am? Or who do people say that I am? And they give some answers, but he doesn't leave it there. In verse 29, he says, but who do you say that I am? And you know how Peter answers? You remember how Peter answers? A lot of people think Mark is basically Peter's gospel, uh, that Mark is recording sermons that Peter preached in Rome. And so this moment is significant to Mark and I'm sure Peter because we see Peter answers Jesus and says to him what? You are the Christ, the Messiah. And so Matthew, Mark, Paul, John, Peter, 
to them, this was fundamental to what it meant to be a Christian. In fact, actually, even the word Christian, it almost sounds like a joke if I say it like this, but if you take Christ out, all you've got is in. (laughs) And, And that's real, actually. You do not have a Christian. Belief in the Messiah is that important. As someone has said, Christian theology centers on the belief that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ or the Messiah. Who is Jesus? He's he's not just anyone that you want him to be. He's someone specific, the one who can save you. He is who he is, and you need to know him as he is. Who is he? The New Testament is written to say that he is the Messiah. In fact, we can take this a step further to show you how important this concept is. If you just think about the Gospel of Luke, which is significant because we're going to be looking at Jesus in Luke in a week or two. But Luke is writing not just to help you understand that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a little more focused. Luke is actually writing to prove to you that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, if you remember from last week, there's a question that's driving why he's writing. And that question is illustrated in the way Luke even ends his book. And you know the story because we've talked about it before, but it's found in Luke chapter 24. As these men are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're discouraged and Jesus comes up alongside of them and they're kept by God from recognizing him. And he asks them why they're discouraged and what they're discouraged about is the fact that they have been studying their Bibles and thinking that Jesus was the Messiah, but now he's dead. And they were confused about how a dead Jesus could be the Messiah they were hoping for. And that was a common enough problem that Luke wrote an entire gospel to answer it. And what Luke wants us to know here in this story is that the real issue is not that Jesus was crucified. Instead, the problem you see in these disciples is that they didn't understand what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. And listen to how Jesus puts it in Luke 24, verse 25. Luke 24, verse 25. Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? And so that's a rebuke, obviously. Foolish ones. You're missing Jesus because you're not believing what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. And that becomes clearer in the next verse where Luke says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And I read that because that takes this to the next level. How important is the concept of Messiah to understanding the Bible? It's not just a New Testament concept. The, the New Testament was written partially and, and, and in large part to show you that Jesus is the Messiah. But it's not just a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept first. And it's such an important key concept that Luke's saying he is going to write a whole gospel, basically, to help you be sure that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament talked about. I heard someone say one time, the Old Testament is a messianic document. It's a book about the Messiah. And that's why I can't just go on if I'm really doing a short introduction to the Old Testament. That's why we have to talk about this word Messiah, because one of the primary reasons the Old Testament is even written is to help you understand the concept of Messiah and to get you to hope in a Messiah. 
And so obviously it's like essential that we know what this word means. What do we mean when we say Jesus is the Messiah? I remember reading about a young Japanese man who became uh, very interested in Christianity and he was eager and so he started reading the Old Testament on his own, straight, uh, Genesis through Malachi. And apparently when he was finished, he went to his friend, he had a friend who was a Christian, and the first question he asked, listen to this, the first question he asked was, where is he? And I don't know, that almost sounds like one of those too good to be true stories, but if it is true, he was perceptive, he got it, he knew what the Old Testament was pointing him toward, and yet unfortunately, we're not always quite as perceptive, and so I want us to prepare for looking at Jesus in the Gospel of Luke by doing almost a word study here to understand what the Old Testament teaches about the Messiah. And we're gonna start at the beginning with the meaning of the word Messiah. That's our first point. The meaning of the Messiah, then the work of the Messiah, and then the characteristics of the Messiah. But first, the meaning of the word Messiah. What does Messiah even mean? And we can start real simply with the word itself. The term Messiah, we use it as a, a title, obviously, but it came originally from an everyday word, and it is used that way primarily in the Old Testament, meaning to anoint someone uh, or something with oil, actually. In fact, uh, long story short, our English word Messiah is the Greek word Messias, which is a transliteration of an Aramaic word, but most Greek speakers wouldn't be familiar with the Aramaic word, obviously. And so the gospel writers use the Greek word Christos instead, which is where we get the word Christ and meant basically the same thing, one who has been anointed. And that's how they would have heard that word Christ at first. Uh, we read Jesus Christ, and it doesn't really strike us, but they read Jesus Christ, and they would have thought, Jesus, the anointed one, which doesn't have a lot of meaning to us, probably, because we don't really anoint people anymore, except for coaches at the end of games with, like, Gatorade after they win a title or something. But it is something that was more significant if you're familiar with the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, if you wanted to set something apart, or even a, a person apart for God's use, you would anoint those objects or that person with oil. And I'm not saying it exactly right because the way it was supposed to work is that God would set someone apart and you would recognize them as being set apart for God by anointing them with oil. For example, Aaron in Leviticus chapter eight, this is probably the first example we get of someone being anointed like this, Leviticus chapter eight, verses 10 through 12, Aaron was Moses's brother and he was the very first high priest, the person in charge of representing God to the people and the people to God. And how did they know out of the whole nation that Aaron was supposed to do that? Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them, set them apart for God. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So priests were anointed. That's like the basic word for uh, Messiah. That's where we get the title from. And not only priests, Actually, prophets and kings as well were anointed. So 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, verse 16, and you can find this in 
a number of places throughout the Old Testament, but here is one place where both are mentioned. First Kings chapter 19, verse 16, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint, that's our word, to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Saphat, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So here are all these people, and God is identifying and setting apart the ones who are supposed to be prophet, priest, or king through anointing, which is why we say the Messiah is the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there wasn't just one Messiah, there were Messiahs. And it sounds funny to say it like that because we're so used to thinking of Messiah with a capital M. But there were all these individuals who were Messiahs with little Ms. They were set apart and they were strengthened by God for a specific purpose to be used by him to serve him in very specific ways. And I think one way they serve, honestly, is just by giving us a picture of what we're talking about when we're talking about the Messiah. God took thousands of years to get you ready to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. And so through these little messiahs, he's giving us a picture to help us understand when we talk about the Messiah, we're talking about someone who was chosen by God to act as a go-between, a representative between God and man, either ruling his people, speaking to his people, or atoning for his people, or providing atonement for his people so they can have peace with him. That is the, the basic meaning of the term Messiah, anointed one. You can think of God stepping into this world to choose a hero. Now, let's talk about the work of Messiah. That's our, our second point. What is the Messiah? What does a Messiah do? And stick with me because this will keep building so that you can be ready for Jesus next week in Luke. But this is one of the reasons we have these little messiahs throughout the Old Testament because we don't know what we need for ourselves, what kind of hero that we need. And so God's kind and he knows we need help understanding the work of Jesus, the great messiah. So throughout the Old Testament, he gives us these little pictures through smaller messiahs to set us up for understanding the work of the one true messiah. In other words, these little messiahs point us to the big messiah, to Jesus' work as prophet, priest, and king. It's kind of like, again, we need God to send a hero, but what kind of hero? And generally, these are the categories that help us understand. We are sinners, so we need someone to represent us to God. We need a priest. We're ignorant, and so we need someone to teach us about God. We need a prophet. And we're rebels, we need someone to rule over us we need a king. And part of what makes Jesus so exciting is that as we read the Old Testament, we keep meeting these little prophets, these little priests, these little kings, these little heroes, who no matter how great they were, kept failing. I mean, even if you just take the first three men that come to your mind to represent these offices, as an example. So high priest, who comes to your mind first? Maybe Melchizedek, because we read that in Psalm 110, but also maybe Aaron. Uh, what is Aaron's first work as high priest? Do you remember? Pretty much making an idol. Then Moses, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He doesn't trust God and he's kept out of the promised land. And then David, he doesn't obey the Mosaic covenant. And actually for each of those roles, God promises in the Old Testament someone greater. Moses, what does he say in Deuteronomy 18? Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, Then the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Is it him? Or it is to him you shall listen. 
And in the New Testament, they were saying, what about Jesus? Is this the, is this the prophet? And priests, 1 Samuel chapter 2, after judging Eli's family for being unfaithful priests, God says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And then, of course, David. We looked at God's promise to David. So it's like the Old Testament gives us these pictures of the work of the Messiah, these little, these categories through all these different men. But even as it does, it's really clear that we're going to need someone greater than any of them. And, of course, the New Testament is like, good news, that's Jesus, because he is the, the perfect high priest. Read the book of Hebrews. He doesn't sin, yet he understands us. He's in God's presence. He's offered the, the final sacrifice. And he's the great prophet, John 1. He literally is the word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And he's the perfect king as well. And remember that one, because Luke chapter 1 is going to be putting that on display as the angel comes and tells Mary, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom will be no end. And so when we say Jesus is the Messiah, we're saying real generally, just real broadly, that he is the hero of heroes. That he's the one who can satisfy all of our deepest needs because he's the one chosen by God to, to reveal God to us. He is the one chosen by God to make the sacrifice so we can come into the presence of God. He is the one chosen to rule over us on God's behalf. That's a, a pretty good start for understanding the work of Messiah, prophet, priest, king. But you know, I think we can even get a little more specific than that because while Messiah had all of these roles. He's coming for a specific task that the New Testament or the Old Testament focuses in on. And we get a picture of that specific task by turning to another illustration of a Messiah in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 45. And it's a little ironic, I guess, that we would turn to Isaiah chapter 45 because what we see in, in this chapter is that one of the most helpful illustrations of the great Messiah's work comes from a bit of a surprising place, and that is a pagan king. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, do you see it? Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 45, 1, to his anointed. And that is Messiah with the little m. So who is the Lord's anointed in Isaiah 45, verse 1? Well, he tells us next, to Cyrus, who was a pagan king, not even actually alive at this point that Isaiah is writing. This is a prophecy. But this is a, a strange way to talk about a pagan king. But as we look at what God says about Cyrus's work, we understand a little more about what it means to be a Messiah. First, he was chosen by God, and we kind of stressed that already with the idea of anointing. But again, that's how he came to be called a Messiah in the first place. It wasn't something Cyrus chose for himself. God selected him to accomplish a purpose. Verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. I mean, again, I guess this is important to have in our heads. When we think about the Messiah, who's this great hero, we're thinking about someone who was sent by God. You didn't choose to be uh, a, a king. You didn't volunteer to be a Messiah. There wasn't like a vote who's going to be king, priest, or prophet. Not for the real ones. Cyrus probably didn't even choose for himself to be the Messiah of Israel. This is God 
taking the initiative. When we talk about Messiah, we're talking about a divinely chosen individual. Cyrus was chosen by God first. Second, he was chosen by God to serve in a specific way. The Messiah had a God-given job to do. And for Cyrus, Isaiah tells us in verse one, it was to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed. And so God had something he wanted to do for his people, and he chooses to get it done through a human representative. And Cyrus's accomplishments as a result were God's accomplishments because God was choosing to work through Cyrus as his agent. Says in verse 28 of chapter 44, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, which again is at the heart of what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about the Messiah. God has something he wants to get accomplished. And so he's choosing and setting apart someone for that job. And third, what is that job exactly? Again, if you look at Cyrus, you get an illustration because the third thing we see about Cyrus is that his job was to judge God's enemies, rescue God's people, and paved the way for the extension of God's salvation to the end of the earth. Isaiah 45, four, I will give you the treasures of the darkness and the hordes in secret places. Why? Verse four, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by name, I name you, though you do not know me. And later on in verse 13, he explains a little further, I've stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. So he's gonna send Israel back to Jerusalem after they were taken into captivity. And ultimately that's part of God's bigger purpose for the world. If you fast forward all the way down to verse 22 of chapter 45, God calls the entire earth, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other, which is a picture of the ultimate work of the Messiah actually. We need a hero and not just someone who tries to be a hero, we need God to send a hero to do what? Old Testament, judge the wicked, save his people Israel, and accomplish salvation for people in nations all over the earth. And you know, if you take a step back and just think about the story of the Old Testament, it's kind of fun to see how the entire Old Testament comes together to get us anticipating that. Because I mean, it's not just these little glimpses of the Messiah that we get here or there in the Old Testament that help us understand what he's coming to do. It's actually the whole thing. From start to finish, the Old Testament is getting us ready to understand what the Messiah is going to do. And this is where I think it gets fun, so hold on. Genesis, let's just work our whole way through the entire Old Testament now to see how it gets us ready to understand the work of the Old Testament, uh, of the Messiah. Genesis begins by telling us to think big. So you're upset with the way the world is. Genesis is like, you're right. You were made for something more. What is it? It's God's big plan, the kingdom. And Genesis tells us the problem, sin, and then it gives us the promise that God is gonna send someone to overcome Satan, and he even explains later that he's gonna be the ruler of the universe, Genesis 49. And of course, that's the Messiah. By the end of Genesis, you're looking for a warrior king. Then Exodus, Exodus gives us a picture of God's ability to set his people free and a glimpse of why exactly God is saving this way. And then it gives us this idea of a tabernacle, God wanting to dwell with man and also again, the problem that man can't see God 
and, and live. So then there's Leviticus. I'm saying as you read your Bible, it's like there are all these little pieces to help you understand what you need in a Messiah. And Leviticus sets you up by showing you how impossible it is for us as we live right now in this sin-cursed world to, to really survive in the presence of God because he is so holy and right and everything around him has to be holy and right and we are so sinful and broken. And so we begin getting this idea that we need something to atone for us and something to be able to make us clean again and that's gonna involve blood and sacrifice, then numbers. Numbers shows us what's wrong with Israel and of course what's wrong with us. We can't be our own Messiah. It's a, it's a real life example, numbers, of why we're not gonna be able to set up the kingdom as we are right now. And then it gives us one of the most important prophecies about the Messiah in Numbers 24, and it talks about him crushing God's enemies and establishing a kingdom for Israel. And Deuteronomy, there are too many things in Deuteronomy, but when it comes to the work of the Messiah, there is one, Moses saying, he, he's gonna be a great prophet like him, uh, we're supposed to expect a second Moses. Please keep that in mind as you read the New Testament because so much of John and Luke is trying to get you to see Jesus as a second Moses. And then it gives us what you call the law of the king. And so it gives us a standard to evaluate future would-be messiahs. You can know whether they're the messiah by whether they live up to that standard or not. Joshua keeps us hoping in God's promises about the messiah because it shows us that God is able to do what he said he would do. And then Judges proves once and for all, we need a hero who is gonna be a king. Ruth, the very last word of Ruth is David. And so Ruth, you combine it with judges, we need a king, but more than that, we need a Davidic king. First and second Samuel begins with a prayer that really is a prophecy about how God is gonna break his adversaries to pieces and judge the ends of the earth through the future Messiah. And then of course, we get this whole idea about a kingdom that lasts forever and a king who represents the people. And through his obedience, God's gonna bring all these blessings and fulfill his covenants. And then first and second Kings, and I'm just gonna give you the, the general punchlines. It tells us that this messianic king has to be perfect and should cause us to anticipate that if this plan of God's is gonna work, he's also gonna to have to live forever. First and second Chronicles, same story, only to, to add to that, we need a perfect king and we need a perfect priest. The next few books of the Bible come from a time after Israel was sent into exile. So it's like towards the end of the Old Testament. And Ezra and Nehemiah show us that even with all that God's done and with people who are coming back to the land and saying they want to obey God, as they are, Ezra and Nehemiah remind us, they are not going to be able to establish God's kingdom even then. So it gets us longing again for the Messiah. Like, okay, Israel's been kicked out of the land. God kept his promise and brought them back into the land. But still there is a major problem. Esther gives us hope that God's working behind the scenes even when you can't see him. And one really cool thing about Esther is the way it ends because you've got this guy Mordecai who at the beginning was attacked and it looked bad for him, but God raises him up and gives him this important position of authority, which sounds a lot like who? Sounds a lot like Genesis, which was all about God taking care of his people while they were in exile and being able to take man's evil and use it for good. And so it's sort of a hint, like God's people are in a bad space right now, but this has happened before and God sent a rescuer and he's gonna do it again. And so it's pushing the story forward. And then Job, 
Job actually takes us way back. It might even be the first book of the Bible that was written. And yet Job's got all this information that helps us understand the work of the Messiah as Job struggles with the suffering in this world. And he's got some things that he's longing for. First of all, he's longing for God to deal with the problem of sin, Job 7, 20 and 21. Second of all, he wants a go-between, someone to be a mediator between God and man. It's pretty cool in Job 9.33. He says he wants someone who's able to lay his hand on God and man. So that's like, I, I need a hero with a unique relationship with God and man. And then he's longing for someone to deal with the problem of death. Job 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? And Job knew that he needed a redeemer, actually. Job 19, but he didn't know how God was going to go about it. He just knew what he needed in a Messiah. And the rest of the Bible tells us God's answers to Job's desires. In fact, Job, you could think of it as almost like the first book of the Bible saying, this is why you need a Bible. This is why you need revelation so that you can understand how God is going to fix these problems. Then Psalms. And Psalms is literally the book in the Bible that tells us the most about the work of the Messiah. But let me just highlight Psalm 2, which says that he's God's son and that God is going to make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. And I'm just trying to give you a big picture view of the Old Testament work of the Messiah. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are a little more difficult, of course. You've got to do a little work to see how they fill in the fixed picture. But the best I can do is Proverbs is Solomon teaching his son about wisdom. And for the most part, he's talking about applying God's law to the everyday situations of life. And that's, of course, the kind of Messiah King that we need ultimately, someone who's wise enough to know how to obey God in the nitty gritty. And actually, uh, Proverbs shows us we definitely need someone better than Solomon because Solomon knew a lot about obeying God in the nitty gritty. But think about Solomon's life. It's basically the opposite of Proverbs. And Ecclesiastes just puts the problem of death in our face again, that this world's so broken, there is no way that it's going to be fixed just by trying to be wise. We need a, a savior. Death has to be dealt with. Song of Songs is about marriage. And yet, of course, marriage is an analogy the Bible uses to describe the Messiah's love for his people. So Song of Songs is not so much about that it's about marriage, but it does provide some categories for appreciating the Messiah's coming. Isaiah gives us three different pictures of the Messiah. In the first 39 chapters, Messiah is a glorious king. In chapter 45, Messiah is a suffering servant. Chapters 40 to 55, Messiah is a suffering servant. And then in chapters 56 through 66, he's the conquering warrior. And you come out of Isaiah wondering how all of these are going to be put together. In fact, some thought, does he mean there are going to be three messiahs? Jeremiah actually gets us wondering about the Messiah as being someone more than just another man. Because in Jeremiah 23, he talks about raising up for David a branch, which is a term for Messiah. And then you know the name he uses for this branch, Jeremiah 23, verse 6. And this is the name by which he will be called. Wait for it. The Lord our righteousness, a divine Messiah. And there's so much more, but Lamentations is a book written about the suffering God's people would experience as they were being judged for their sins. And there are some who say Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, he probably did, and there are some ways that Jeremiah, who wrote this book, points us to the Messiah as he so identifies with the nation and their suffering. It's like he takes their suffering upon himself. Jeremiah, they call him what? The weeping prophet. And as Jeremiah talks, sometimes you can't tell, is it 
Jeremiah talking or, or God talking because he so identifies with the nation and their suffering, which of course the Messiah would come and do. And then of course, Ezekiel chapter 34, God promises that he's gonna be like a shepherd and he's gonna seek out his sheep from all over the world and he's gonna feed them and rescue them. And he says, he's gonna set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And that's talking about the Messiah. He is the Satan crusher. He's the one who enables us to dwell with God. He's gonna rule over the universe. He's gonna be a prophet greater than Moses. He's the fulfillment of God's promises. He's the king we need. He's gonna rule forever. He's gonna obey God's law perfectly. He's God's son. He represents God's people. He's the king, the servant, the warrior. He's called the same names as God. He so identifies with God's people that he suffers with them. He is the good shepherd. And then there's Daniel. And Daniel's the one who describes the Messiah as the son of man. And I can't wait to get to that. And him coming on the clouds of heaven and being given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him forever and ever. Then all the minor prophets. Hosea talks about a second exodus, a second great deliverance, and of course leads you to expect a second Moses. Joel shows us how big God's plan is as it talks about the day of the Lord. And even we start to see there's gonna be some outpouring of the spirit of God that's connected to this day. Amos promises even though the time's coming when the Davidic dynasty is gonna look like it's over, God's gonna raise up a second David who's gonna return the earth to basically Garden of Eden-like conditions. Obadiah, that God's gonna be faithful to his promises that he made in Genesis, and then he's gonna judge all the nations. Jonah gives us hope that God is concerned about people who aren't Jews and actually shows us what Israel's attitude should be towards the nation, what gives us, which gives us hope that this hero God's sending has a bigger agenda than just saving that one nation. Micah promises the Messiah is gonna stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He's gonna be great to the ends of the earth and he's not actually gonna bring peace to the world, he is going to be peace. Nahum is the flip side of Jonah, reminding us that God does have a heart for the nation, that nations, there's hope in the Messiah, but there's also judgment for those who don't repent. Nahum presents them God as warrior. Habakkuk reminds us God knows what he's doing in the middle of, of confusing times. We just need to keep trusting his promises about the Messiah. And he gives us hope that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Zephaniah talks about a day when the king of Israel is standing in the middle of his people and they never have to fear again. Haggai tells us that God's gonna dwell in his temple again. And so when we put that together with everything else, we're expecting the Messiah to be the one who makes that possible. In fact, he describes the Messiah as accomplishing a worldwide victory like the one he did over Pharaoh, but with absolutely every evil nation. Zechariah's got too many things to add, but one important thing he tells us about the Messiah is that he's gonna be both king and priest together ruling over the nations. You can read Zechariah 6, 9 to 15. And then of course there's Malachi who describes the Messiah as someone who will purify God's people and will provide God's healing for them. I mean, you can see the Old Testament. 
Yeah, there are parts that are hard to understand, but it's not hard to see that it's driving us. It's all driving us to put all of our hopes in this coming hero. It's stripping us of this tendency we have to depend on ourselves and pushing us to completely trust in him. And it takes everything that we ever could possibly long for and says over and over and over that it all depends on this great Messiah coming, forgiveness, world peace, prosperity, our relationship with God, final justice, all hang on the coming Messiah, which is why people started getting excited when Jesus started preaching and saying the kingdom of God is here. Because the Jewish people had been longing for hundreds and hundreds of years for this day when God would reveal his sovereignty over all the earth, when through his Messiah, he would destroy all these other so-called gods and bring all peoples to his feet and make every wrong right, which is why they also might have been a little confused when the one they thought was that Messiah ended up being crucified, because that's not how they thought it was going to happen, and so they must have been wondering what happened. If Jesus is God's anointed, if he's God's chosen prophet, priest, and king, if his role, like Cyrus is to judge God's enemies and to bring God's salvation for his people and exercise his rule over the universe, fulfilling all these things the Bible promises about the Messiah. How come he ended up being rejected by the Jews and humiliated by the Romans on the cross? And while there are different answers to that, one main thing the New Testament says, and really one main reason Luke is written is to say that it's because it was necessary to fulfill the Old Testament promise. Was to say, this actually was part of the plan from the beginning. And so maybe we can close with this. We've talked about the meaning of the Messiah, the basic work of the Messiah. Now, third, characteristics of the Messiah, the Old Testament promise. What will this Messiah be like? Which is where we really could get lost because to do this justice, would require a course, not a class. But what I want to show you is how God's not only describing the work of the Messiah throughout the Bible, but also revealing more and more exactly and specifically who this Messiah is and how he's going to accomplish his task so that we can recognize him when he comes. If you think of the Old Testament like a pregnant lady, the Messiah is there in Genesis in embryonic form, like the first month of a woman's pregnancy. And then as you move through the Old Testament, her belly keeps getting bigger and bigger until you finally get to the New Testament and out pops Jesus. He was to be the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And some of these are familiar, but I hope they build as we walk through. I think I got these from my old professor, Doug Bookman. And, and as you begin to see how comprehensive these prophecies are, it's pretty overwhelming. He, he was to be the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, verse 14. He was to come through the line of Abraham, Genesis 12. More specifically, the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. Even more specifically, of the line of Jesse, through the line of David, 2 Samuel 7. And this is important because he was coming to be king. Though born of a human mother, this Messiah king will also be fully God, Psalm 45.6, Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6. Though coming to be king and though the majestic God, this Messiah was to be born in a humble place called Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Basically, uh, it's like the Davidic king 
ship has to start all over. We have to go back to where it started. His, his birth was to be preceded by that of a forerunner who would function as a prophet to prepare the way for him. Isaiah 43, Malachi 3.1. His ministry was to begin in Galilee, Isaiah 9.1 and 2. But he was also to enter Jerusalem, Zechariah 9.9, where he would possess the temple, Malachi 3.1. His ministry would be punctuated with miracles, Isaiah 35. But he would be humble, Zechariah 9.9. And he himself would be despised, Isaiah 49.7. He would bring good news to the afflicted, Isaiah 61. He would be a channel of divine blessing to the world, Genesis 12, while being rejected by the nation's rulers, Psalm 118, 22, betrayed by someone close to him, Psalm 41, 9, and abandoned for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 13. He would be smitten on the cheek, Micah 5, 1, spat on, Isaiah 56, mocked, Psalm 22, 7 and 8, and whipped, Isaiah 50, verse 6. His own people would reject him because he was not what they expected. His whole life would be characterized by suffering and not royalty and those who sought to kill him would view it as the punishment he deserved. When put to trial, he would not make a defense, Isaiah 53. And that trial would lead to a crucifixion-type death, Psalm 22. His hands and feet were to be pierced, Psalm 22:16, Zechariah 12:10. Yet none of his bones would be broken, Psalm 34:20. As he's being killed, his followers would be scattered, Zechariah 13:7. After being killed, his body will be buried with the wealthy, Isaiah 53:9. But he will remain uncorrupted, Psalm 16. 10, because he will rise miraculously from the grave, after which he will ascend into heaven and sit at God's right hand until his enemies are defeated, Psalm 110.1. He will come again in judgment upon the nations, Isaiah 63.1-6, Psalm 96.11-13, Jeremiah 23.5. He will reign in perfect peace, justice, and righteousness as king over the entire earth, Psalm 2, 6-12. God will cause Israel to look upon him, to mourn, and to repent, Zechariah 12.10. He will unify and restore the nation of Israel, Ezekiel 36. He will bring salvation to Israel and reign over her as king, Micah 5.2. He will be given glory and everlasting authority over all the nations of the earth, and his kingdom will be established forever, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which gives us a start to understanding the Old Testament's description of the Messiah, but I think makes the point that Luke is intending to make in his gospel, which is that what happened to Jesus isn't proof that he isn't the Messiah. If you look if you actually look, it's the opposite because it's exactly what God predicted would happen to the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. I mean, obviously there are some parts to these promises that are confusing, but I'll tell you what makes them more confusing. And this is what Luke's going after. Unbelief and, and false teaching. And this was the problem in Jesus' day, why it was so hard. The religious leaders were focusing on one aspect of the Messiah's work and missing the whole picture, and the disciples were having a hard time hearing Jesus' corrections because they were not believing him. Remember Luke 24? Foolish of heart, slow to believe. That's the way Jesus exposes their problem. And look, I don't want their problem to be ours because right now there is a lot going on in the world. And things are confusing. And a lot of things don't seem to make sense. But if we just open our Bibles and try to really hear what God's saying, beginning in the Old Testament, we see God has told us he has a plan, kingdom. And we see God slowly but surely revealed how he's going to accomplish that plan through covenants. And all this talk about Israel 
And in spite of how bad everything gets, we've seen how committed God is to that promise as he responds to Israel's rebellion with this huge promise to David. And then we've been reassured after even the descendants of David failed that God really is committed to the promise he made in Genesis to conquer Satan and reverse the curse and bring blessing in the future in the last days. It's a big word, but we've got that hope because of Old Testament eschatology. And even more than that, we've got hope because God told us specifically that he's going to accomplish all this. It's going to be him who accomplishes all this, not us. And he's going to do it through this hero that he sends. He promised he would send a hero. And you know, it's amazing because he's been making promises about that hero for thousands of years, all throughout different books of the Bible, in the oldest sections of the Bible, in the last prophet, Malachi, talking about small details, big events, talking about the Messiah as king, the Messiah as man of sorrows. But when all these promises are examined and compared with the life of Jesus, we see that he fulfills them all perfectly, which of course is why Luke, Peter, Paul were willing to, to die to get this message out. We are so privileged. You hear what I'm saying? Life is confusing, but we are so privileged because we're not just in the dark here. We know the problem and we know the solution because we have the Old Testament that sets out exactly how God's going to rescue us through the Messiah before he even comes. And because we have the New Testament, which proves that Messiah that we're longing for is Jesus. We know what the Messiah will do. And we know who the Messiah is because God has stooped down to reveal all this to us. And one of the primary reasons he has done that is so that we would actually put our hope in him. It's not enough to do a word study and know the word Messiah and what it means. God doesn't simply want us to be able to say all these facts about the Messiah and explain it profoundly to others. He's given us the Old Testament and now we have the New Testament so that we would actually have hope and live our lives trusting and hoping in this great hero, Messiah, that he sent. Because, good news, his work's not finished. He's coming again to complete what he started. Let's pray. Father, this is, I know this is a little different. It feels a little bit like the book of Acts where Paul's reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. But I pray that, the, that you would preach this message to us and that you would help us, Lord, um, to not just know a lot of stuff about the Bible and the Messiah, but to be people who, who long for your return, Jesus, who are convinced that you are the Messiah, absolutely certain, to the point that we're willing to put our lives on the line to proclaim this message to a world that needs to hear it. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.